everyone. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. In today's episode, I had a really fantastic conversation with Lisa Earl McCloyd and Elizabeth Lotaro. They are both from McCloyd and more. And Lisa is a global expert on purpose-driven business and the best-selling author of Selling with Noble Purpose, How to Drive Revenue and Do Work That Makes You Proud, and also the book Leading with Noble Purpose, How to Create a Tribe of True Believers. And Elizabeth is a consultant, researcher, and co-author of Selling with Noble Purpose as well. And they really have spent decades helping leaders increase competitive differentiation, emotional engagement, and their work really debunks this myth that money is the primary motivation for most employees. And they had a phenomenal way of going about research and really recognizing this idea that they call noble purpose. And noble purpose goes beyond just employees. It goes beyond just salespeople, although that's what their niche is. They train salespeople. And if you think about it, we all likely have some aspect of being in sales, whether we are formally tasked with selling a product or service, or we are hoping to persuade or influence others with our ideas, whether it's at work or in our community or in our family. And so really, this is about what is our motive, right? Are we self-serving when we are convincing, influencing, selling, or do we have other people's best interests in mind. And so we have a great conversation about this important distinction between engagement and fulfillment and how we really want to believe that the work that we do matters. We talk about how numbers and logic do not scale, but emotion and belief does. And and we really talk about this whole idea of clarifying and anchoring ourselves on our noble purpose is really about how we make a difference in the world when we're in service of something bigger than ourselves and when we are at our best. And uh, they give some great tips of things we can do right now to make an impact. And it's just a really, really great conversation that I think will have you thinking about purpose differently, thinking about how you show up in terms of interacting with salespeople if you're on the customer end or influencing, convincing, selling others as well. So enjoy. All right. Welcome, ladies. I am so excited to have you both with me today, and I am just very much looking forward to our conversation and all the work you do. We're delighted to be here. We have a lot in common. We do. We do. do. Well, (laughs) so just for the benefit of the listeners, I met you all through, you spoke at one of our Conscious Capitalism Twin Cities chapter events, and it was so interesting because I, you're both your books, Selling with Noble Purpose and then Leading with Noble Purpose, and I have to tell you, I, I was just chuckling and thinking about my history with sales, and I want to put that out there for the audience because they might be like, well, I'm not a salesperson, why am I going to listen to this podcast? And mm-hmm. I would say that, first of all, every single one of us interacts with a salesperson at some point in our life. And I don't know about you, but the way I was thinking about this is I know you officially obviously do training for sales and organizations, but I was thinking about like, I've never considered myself a salesperson yet. If you are trying to persuade or convince people of an idea, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in your family, right? If you're um, consulting, certainly like there's, there's a sales aspect to it. And when I think about salespeople, my husband laughs at me because I like cringe. Like I hate going car shopping. I hate going furniture shopping because I feel like it's the person who pounces on you mm-hmm. and all they want to do is freaking make money and they don't give a rat's behind about you. And we write about this in our, in our new book, Rehumanizing the Workplace. But for a while, for about seven years, I worked in an insurance broker, which is high sales organization. And there was a clash on many levels, but one of them was the salespeople, you know, they have quotas they're trying to meet and they're trying to get their commissions. And 
I was in the consulting arm and the solutions that I was trying to provide a lot of times were contrary to like the vendors that they got kickbacks from, but I was like, this doesn't work. And, and I was really frustrated because I was like, well, why can't we just talk to them about what works and what doesn't work rather than, oh, because you have an agreement with this vendor or you're going to get a higher commission in this, or it's going to look better for the bottom line of the organization. So anyway, I just share all that because I was just reflecting on my background of, of being in a sales organization of being a customer of salespeople and whatnot. And I just think that you obviously go beyond sales, but it just, it really got me thinking about um, just, I don't know how we show up differently and how wonderful it is when we have people who we don't believe have a hidden agenda where they really truly want to serve us or connect with us or get to know us. It's just such a different experience. So anyway, I just wanted to share that as a background. Those are my rambling thoughts as I was like, God, huh, I don't know. I'm thinking about sales in a whole different way. Well, you're not alone in your original thought because so for so many people, sales is about talking someone into doing something that they either don't want to do or that is not actually good for them. But what our research tells is a very different story that the best salespeople, be they selling something tangible, uh, intangible, or simply convincing other people of their ideas the people who are actually the most successful about getting other people excited about their ideas and their products are the people that have the customer's best intent in mind. And the data actually tells us that you're not the only one that doesn't like those pushy, grabby salespeople because they tend to be mediocre performers. The top performers are these people that we say sell with noble purpose, who truly want to make a difference. And that applies whether you're an actual sales team or whether you're just trying to get people engaged. Yeah. Love that because think about how much in an organization, like let's say I, I, I'm not in a formal people leadership role in an organization. I'm an individual contributor. I don't consider myself part of any kind of sales process, but yet maybe you have an idea or you came up with a project or a better way to do something and you're, you're trying to influence, right? Or you want, you want people to listen to you or you want them to be engaged. I feel like it's universally applicable if we think about it on a broader scale. It absolutely is. And every organization needs those people who will lobby for their ideas, who will take the collective best interest at heart. And we don't typically think of that as a sales role, but you're exactly right. Elements of sales are there in every successful role, whether you're trying to convince your CEO to go through with a merger and acquisition or whether you're trying to lobby for, you know, Pizza Hut instead of Chinese food at the holiday party. Sales is beneficial to every seat. Yeah. So can you say a little bit more then about the research and how that influences your work and just what you've, what you've experienced and seen? And I would say particularly, I feel like in 2020, because, because this is times that we have not been in before, there's been a whole lot of people needing to come up with new ideas or let's try this or let's get out of our comfort zone. Yeah. And so, as you said, a lot of the work that we do is with sales driven organizations to help them improve the way they engage with customers. And I'll tell you the research and then the personal side of this. So the research says beyond a shadow of a doubt, the salespeople who sell with noble purpose, who truly want to improve life for customers, outsell salespeople focused on targets and quotas. And that research is solid. Here's what's happened during the times we're in. The The crisis, the health crisis, the financial crisis, the social unrest has created an environment where two things are happening. One, we have a growing chorus of customers saying, 
are you here to help me? Or are you just trying to close me? Because when you do everything over Zoom, motive becomes more transparent. And then the second thing that we're seeing is from so many of our clients is when they send everybody home and you had to, you know, just, you didn't have the nice office, you didn't have the lunches, you didn't have any of those things. And you're facing this huge crisis. People are starting to ask like, who am I and why am I here? And why does my work even matter? So you have these two converging things, this existential crisis of employees saying, does this job matter? Am I just like waking up and doing Zoom at my kitchen table just for nothing? So you have this emotional engagement crisis of employees. And you also have this competitive differentiation crisis out in the market where customers are saying, why, why are you here? And so for those two reasons, this methodology of selling with noble purpose has met the moment. Yeah, I can add some research flavor to that. What we saw in the research, even prior to the coronavirus crisis, is that employees who are tapped into why their work matters, who feel that level of fulfillment at work, they're not only higher performers, no matter what the metrics of their job are, they're more engaged with the organization, they're more likely to stay long term. The concurrent crises that Lisa spoke about has dramatically expedited that difference between an engaged employee and someone who's not engaged because the things that we were using to engage people, the foosball tables, the free lunches, all these perks, those all got stripped away. And when they were stripped away, if you didn't feel an emotional connection to your work, whether you're formally in sales or not, there was nothing really left. So what we're seeing is that the coronavirus crises and the subsequent things that have come out from that have proven it in even more dramatic ways what the research was telling us for the last decade or so, which is that purpose translates to not only better profitability for an organization, but more engagement, more retention, better opportunities for philanthropy, all of those other metrics. Well, I love that. And I think you bring up a really good point that we always try to distinguish is there's a huge difference between engagement and fulfillment, there's a huge difference between perks and actual workplace culture. And when people were confusing culture with what we would say climate, so the foosball tables, the lunches, the the stuff that is nice, but it's the cherry on top, that's not your culture, right? That's your environment. And when you have a dispersed workforce or you have people who you know, um, they're just, their work lives have been disrupted. You're right. They have to have something else to have them feel fulfilled, to have them feel connected, to have them feel engaged in, in their work. You know, and I think about this even beyond work. I was thinking about this with school, like how challenge it is to try to, my son used to love going to school and to try to have him engaged in school when they are now full distance learning, they were hybrid. Now they're all stuck at home because things are shutting down, you know, have shut down in our state again. So, you know, it's just this, how do we, if we don't help people find that noble purpose and connect to it, and I would say reconnect to it, not just like, oh, we found it once we're one and done. And so can you speak a little bit more to what the heck this noble purpose is? So in our vernacular, your noble purpose is how you make a difference to customers. Plain and simple. And what the research tells us is that, so there was some interesting research from Michigan State University. And what it showed was sellers who have this noble purpose, clarity about how they make a difference to customers. They're thinking about it every single day. They have greater tenacity and greater resilience, and they can bounce back from failures. More so than people who are tethered to a financial goal. And so when you think about your noble purpose, how do I make a difference is gonna be a very different driver for your day 
than if you wake up every day and say, how can I hit my production targets? The boss may think you need to wake up every day and think, how can I hit my production targets? But what the data tells us, and it matches our own experience, let's be honest here, is that if I wake up thinking, how am I going to hit my production targets? I'm internally focused. When things go wrong, I'm going to have a hissy fit because I don't know how to deal with it. But when human beings are in the service of something bigger than themselves and in the business vernacular, your customers and your teammates, that's when we're at our best. And so the leadership job is to pull that front and center. And if your leaders aren't doing it, your job is to look at your work and say, how does this make a difference to real life human beings? Because that's going to be the through line, the things that get you out of bed on the days when you say, oh God, another day of Zoom, I can't stand it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that because uh, for, for so many reasons, but I think about, you know, we do a lot of work with organizations to help them articulate their their purpose or their why, and then to take their values if they have not articulated them and actually operationalize them like what are the key behaviors because so many organizations get get stuck there and I've been doing that work much more on the individual level with uh I'm a certified dare to lead facilitator with Brene Brown and doing that work and there's there's so much congruence and I think if you look at 2020 I feel like the individuals and the organizations that have had that clear sense of purpose like you you say noble purpose where they they know how to make a difference. They know who they are. They know what makes them tick. That has allowed them to honor the word of 2020 pivot, right? So like pivot their business, pivot how they show up, pivot who they're being in their lives, because we call it like a lighthouse. It anchors like a lighthouse. It's like, okay, it provides that calm in the midst of the storm and helps you kind of know where to go when everything around you is chaotic and swirling. And so I love that on so many levels. And I think that when we hit crises, it really shows us who we're made of as individuals and collectively as organizations. And I think you, you, you're you seeing that and you, you start to know, oh, does this person really care about me? Or are they just trying to take advantage of the situation? Or does this organization actually have my best interest at heart? Or are they just viewing me as, as a number? So I, I love, I love that. Um, so can you say a little bit more? I know you have some great stories about what's a key difference between like someone who's clarified their noble purpose and how that guides them versus someone who either hasn't clarified that or is numbers or self-driven. Absolutely. So we work with a, I'll give you an example, a commercial bank in the Atlanta area called Atlantic Capital Bank. And collectively they've identified their noble purpose as we fuel prosperity. And here's how it shows up differently in their organization. If you've ever had a commercial loan or even a personal loan, you've probably had the experience of walking into a bank and having a very tactical conversation. What is your loan for? Here's a lot of specs about what we can do on interest rates and down payments and terms and things like that. And the conversation gets tactical really quickly because that person is usually focused inward on on what they can sell you, on the products that they have. If your noble purpose is we fuel prosperity, your discovery conversation looks very different. Instead of diving right into here's the rate we can offer you, here's how it compares to the bank across the street, their bankers are asking questions like, what does prosperity mean to you? If you are able to create a prosperous business, what would that enable you to do for your 
for your community? You know, how does the organization's prosperity impact your employees? How does it impact you personally? And we're having this different conversation, not necessarily about a commercial loan, but about why that loan matters and what it's going to enable an organization to do. So to use your word, having a different lighthouse, a different North Star prompts a series of behaviors that are very different than the than the traditionally transactional sales that we see so often. And so one of the things you can do is you think about, as Elizabeth described that, it's not without coincidence that they were voted a best bank of the year, that the CEO was on the cover of American Banker, that their, their earnings skyrocketed. Take that example where you have a banker saying, my purpose with this customer is to fuel their prosperity and flip it and say, you work for a software company, you work for an accounting firm, you work for a pharmaceutical company. And if your purpose is some improvement for the customer, you go from that transactional salesperson that you describe on the car lot where they look at you and they go, huh, how much money can I make on this one? You go from that transactional seller to a strategic partner of that customer. Because the end game is not just about the sale. The end game is improving the customer's condition and you're using your solution to do that. And so that's why a lot of the companies that we work with have quite quickly in the course of 12 and 24 months seen huge increases in revenue, big competitive differentiation in the market. And, and the and here is really important, greater emotional engagement with their team where they start to win best place to work awards. Because usually what happens is people go down this emotional engagement path and they lose their market differentiation or they go down that drive revenue path and the employees feel like they work, you know, it's a workhouse from Charles Dickens. And so what the, if you think about the example Elizabeth described, those people are getting both of those things. The yeah. banker is doing something meaningful with the emotional engagement for themselves because they're making a difference. And the customer is having this very differentiated experience. Well, yeah. And you can feel it, it right. As a customer, mm-hmm. as, as an employee, absolutely. And what it, what it makes me think of is we, uh, we leverage some of the awesome work from the Arbinger Institute and they talk about having an inward mindset versus an outward mindset, right? So mm-hmm. inward mindset, it's all about me, my needs, my objectives, my challenges. And I think certainly prior to 2020, there was a lot of that going on, but I think when the, the challenges of 2020, you see individuals, you see organizations kind of getting into that very me focus versus an outward mindset is looking at what's the impact I'm having on other people. Like, am I making a positive impact? Am I making a difference? And I see other people as human beings that have their own needs, objectives, and challenges. So that example of the bank, it's like, well, what does this mean to you? And what are you wanting to achieve? What are your needs? What are your objectives? What are the challenges you're facing? And I think you know, even for us as a business, when we've had to pivot for our our current clients and even taking on new business during this time, it's been like, well, what is it that right now, like, I know we have this in our contract, but like 2020 has thrown us 5 million curveballs. What matters most now? And how can we get creative and figure out, can we help you do that? Or is that outside of our wheelhouse? And do we need to readjust and find you someone else and, and be really realistic? And I think those conversations strengthen relationships and, and they, they strengthen trust, I feel like, because, um, and they do it on so many levels and in the organization it's, or even within like your communities. I mean, let's just go into the, do you wear a mask or don't you wear a mask? Well, inward mindset is no, I'm not going to wear a mask because you're taking away my freedoms outward is like, let's look at the data. Let's look at the science. I'm looking at other people beyond just my own inconvenience type of thing. And so I just think that everything you're talking about, it's really, can we turn our lens outward 
and really start to see the impact we're having in other people. And can we anchor that off of a clear sense of who we are and our own purpose? Yeah. And and this is the age old human challenge, you know, that, that we tend to focus on ourselves. But one of the things that companies can do is you're going to have, our research has shown, you're going to have a certain percentage of people who are what we call these noble purpose performers. They're high performers. They're there to make a difference. You're also going to have low performers. But where the company really can get traction is in the middle. Is It's not enough to just say, let's not think about ourselves. You have to have absolute clarity about here is how we are improving life for customers, like the bank did. We've worked with a concrete company that's done this, Uh, you know, a lot of different people. So it's not industry specific, but if you don't provide your people with clarity about here's how we make a difference to customers, then you've just got this sort of vague, be a nice person, you know, mantra, which in the face of fear and uncertainty sometimes goes out the window. What were you going to add, Elizabeth? I I was going to echo that same point. It's easy for us all to sit here in the comfort of our home offices and say, we need to look outward, right? All three of us have successfully run consulting firms, but that's really tough on a day-to-day basis. It's tough for salespeople. It's become even more challenging in the face of great uncertainty. And the more vague a purpose is, the less likely it is to get traction because we don't have the emotional energy or or the intellectual bandwidth at this moment to start to understand unpack these things. We need the help of an organization to show us how we're making a difference. So when we do get into that frantic fear-based mindset, we have something clear to tether us to instead of feeling like I'm not supposed to feel this way, but I don't know how to not. How to not feel this way. And I, one of the things we saw, I didn't realize it was the the warm-up and the precursor to the current environment, but one of the things that you saw very clearly in the recession Everyone was hit by the recession, but the firms who had clarity of a customer-driven purpose bounced back and outperformed the market by about 350%. And it's not because they uh, didn't suffer the economic setbacks, but that clarity of purpose sustained them. And so one of the things we tell our clients is, if you don't have it now, listen to that Chinese proverb, best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, second best time is today. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the clients that we write about in our book, we did a lot of work with them to clarify their purpose. And albeit there's some employees that have found it really, really helpful and rallied and some are like, I don't get it. And they're not feeling connected to it. And I think that gets into on a day in day out basis. Are Mm -hmm. are your people leaders helping people connect to it? Are are people taking their own responsibility to look at their own personal purpose and how they connect to it? But that aside, their CEO has said consistently that if we hadn't done this work, 2020 would be so much harder. I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. And they're an essential business. So they, they, you know, they've had to completely pivot and they have massive safety concerns. Where like they have to have two people, but yet you have to keep distance and just really reconfiguring how do they do their business? Um, and you have people who maybe aren't very technologically savvy and all this different stuff. And, and they're like, if we had not had our why and our house or our purpose and our values to anchor us and all the work we've done to give people a common language and a common way of showing up differently, it, it would be, it would be night and day for sure. Absolutely. And, and I think to go back what, to what you said earlier in this conversation, making them really behavioral. We all know organizations who have a lot of values or organizations who have a purpose even that doesn't really mean anything. There's the, a famous example of Enron having integrity etched in marble in their lobby. And, and you know we all know how that turned out. 
But I think now what your client has seen and what a lot of organizations have seen is that when those things, a purpose, values, these behavior or guardrails are truly baked into a culture, it makes those quick decisions a lot easier because it provides you some guardrails on what you're supposed to be doing and what you're supposed to be working for. Absolutely. And I would take it, I'm always like integrating the organization with self. So I just want to integrate, go back to individuals can do this, right? So if, if, if I'm like, oh, my organization hasn't done that work, or I'm frustrated because there isn't clarity of purpose, you know, with what you said, it also works in the individual level. So this exercise that we walk people through of clarifying their core values. And then what are those behavioral guardrails? And I will tell you, I have mine literally sitting here on my computer that I look at and it says, these are the behaviors that are in alignment. These are the behaviors when I'm out of alignment. These are the early warning indicators I'm getting out of alignment. And I anchor myself in it multiple times a day, particularly if I'm feeling stressed or I'm going into a challenging situation, it really does provide that anchor. And so I think that people can do this work on an individual level and think about, you know, how do I make a difference? It's a core human need to feel like we matter and we're heard and seen. So when you think about what is like, how do I make a difference in my family? How do I make a difference in my neighborhood, in my community, in my work team, in my, you know, the list goes on and on. And when I'm at my best, what is that noble purpose, right? And, and how are those behaviors? And just start to really think about who are we when we're at that best? And what do we need for that version of ourselves to show up? I think that's work we can all do regardless of the role that we have within an organization as well. Agreed. We absolutely can. And, and to wait for your leadership to do it is to abdicate personal responsibility. And so one of the things that we try and do with folks is as an organization is identify who are you on your best day so that you are clear and explicit about that. So you can remind yourself on your worst day. And if it's not explicit, you'll forget. And, and so a lot of the work is around taking what's implicit in an organization, because if you have an organization, you are already making a difference to your customers or no one will be buying from you. So you, you wouldn't you're exist. Doing, yeah. You're doing something and taking that and making it absolutely explicit. And I often say getting clear on your noble purpose as an organization or as an individual in your job about how you make a difference what it does is it doesn't necessarily make all the things that you do easier. I think Roy Spence said, doesn't make your decisions easier, makes them clear. It also doesn't make your task necessarily easier, but it infuses them with meaning. Yeah. And, and that is what people need now. Because otherwise every day is just this rinse and repeat. You know, I've heard different acronyms. It's Groundhog Day. It's time to make the donuts again. You know, every day (laughs) is just a rinse and repeat. And if your people on your team and your organization are feeling like that, it is only a matter of time before they do what we call the quit and stay, which is when they quit caring, but they stay on your payroll and you cannot afford that. Yeah, I say it's the I quit, but forgot to tell you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what it reminds me of, because I know Elizabeth, you I love that you always go back to the research because we're always big about grounding ourselves in, in science, but the the work that Amy Rosniewski and colleagues have done on job crafting and looking at, I mean, there's so many examples, but this is relevant for 2020 and the pandemic of looking at uh, hospital workers in particular, the cleaning crews. And a lot of times these are very low wage earners. You know, they're kind of not even thought of, or when you th- we think about now, we think about the doctors and the nurses and the heroes mm-hmm. and whatnot, but let's be honest, infection control is massively huge. And when they looked at, you know, it was 10,000 plus hospital uh, cleaning crew. And you look at those that I would say have that noble purpose versus those that didn't that use it as a job 
like, oh, I'm just here to clean, doesn't matter, whatever, versus those that had a purpose actually saw themselves as a critical part of the care team. And they'd be in and people might be in a coma or an ICU, but they would talk to them or they would change the flowers or they they really viewed that they were an essential part of that team, which they are. Correctly and it so, made right? a night and day of how they showed up how they cared for the patients, whether the patients were conscious or not, um, the care that they took even with cleaning. I mean, it makes a huge, huge difference. I think that there's a lot of thankless, previously thankless jobs that have now become the quote unquote essential jobs that we're now recognizing, wow, like we, these people matter profoundly and what they do contributes to our livelihood, our well-being, our society. So it's, I just believe that we all have the ability to find fulfillment in our lives and in our work. And to your point, Lisa, we can't sit back and wait for someone else, quote unquote, more qualified or with the title, abdicate that responsibility. Like we can figure out what fulfills us, what makes us tick, who are we at our best? How do we contribute? And that's work we all need to be doing. Yeah, I would say about that cleaning crew, the data, I read some of that work, the data on how they behave is so just different in terms of the million little things. But the other thing is, how do they feel when they go home at night? That crew that feels like this is meaningful is having a completely different work experience. And and one of the things I often say is you don't have to change your life per se, but you can change the way you feel about it. Yeah. And when you put that sense of noble purpose at the front and center and you look at your actions through the lens of how they affect others, you will absolutely enjoy your life more. There's some really interesting research that's related to that from Adam Grant. I don't know if you've explored this about the call center study where he took two groups of student employees, both of whose job it was to call alumni and solicit donations. So you can imagine these people are met with a good bit of rejection, right? They're calling in the middle of a student debt crisis to people who are trying to eat dinner, asking for donations to a school they no longer attend. It's a tough job. But what Adam Grant determined was that this group, this will call group A, who spoke with a student who was receiving scholarship money and were told, you know, the donations that you're soliciting help students just like this. They talked to the student about what he was studying, about why he was on a scholarship in the first place. That group performed almost twice as well as the group who was just given their job responsibilities. And the same thing played out with the hospital sanitation study. When people are deeply connected into why their work matters, they are more emotionally engaged. And because of that, they go above and beyond in their performance. They stay on the phone longer. They make more calls. They're more authentic with their questions. And it shows up in the numbers, which we know are a lagging indicator to that early belief. Well, that even gets into a whole other conversation we could have about, are we measuring the right things, right? On a, because so often we're not measuring the right things or what we measure leads us to circumvent that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like how many calls did you get done or how much of this did you get done versus how do you know on a day in day out basis or weekly basis or monthly basis, are you having the impact? Are you serving your purpose? Are you showing up well? Uh, and I think those are things that hopefully people are paying attention to more, but yeah, it, it's, it's hugely different. And you know, the other thing that made me think of when uh, Lisa, when you were talking about um, the, the hospital cleaning crew as well, you know, I think about things that like we can do. Like, I know that I don't think I ever used to thank the person at the grocery store that was checking me out. But like when the pandemic hit, I regularly, I'm like, thank you for being here. And thank, thank you for what you do. Like, I think that sometimes 
we forget to thank people or let them know that they matter. Or, you know, we, we are fortunate enough that we have an amazing cleaning crew that comes every two weeks. And I periodically try to remind them, like, you don't just clean the house, like you doing what you do frees me up hours of my time that I can be with my family, that I can show up with my community. And, and so what you're giving me is the gift of time. What you're giving me is the gift of precious time with my family. Like, you know, and maybe that's not how they view their work, but that's how I view their work. And so I just think that there's ways that we can let people know the impact that they're having in our lives, because I think sometimes we do get taken for granted or people might lose sight of that. So I think that not just do we need to figure that out for ourselves, but I think that's a gift that in this gift giving season that we could give other people. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think when we do things really frequently, we often lose that emotional tether. So to use your, your cleaning folks, as an example, you have that experience once every two weeks, they're probably cleaning multiple houses per day. And the same is true at, at an organization. We're talking to multiple customers per day, but that customer might only be talking to one vendor. So if you are the one person, the person who's only experiencing it once, the person who's interacting once and not doing it on a daily basis, taking the responsibility to show that person why it matters and that it's not a rinse and repeat task that it might feel like to them is a really, really important thing we can do as communities. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So I know we've been talking a lot about the noble purpose and sales, and I want to make sure we also touch on your second book, which is also around noble purpose, but it also gets into the premise behind this whole podcast of leading with noble purpose. And I love your subtitle of how to create a tribe of true believers, because we In our new book, we talk about these five rehumanizing principles and the fifth rehumanizing principle we say is find your tribe. And, and I don't know about you, but you know, there's a lot, particularly with the social justice crisis, there's a lot of, I don't know, debate or whatever around the word tribe, like tribalism is bad. Like when you're around people, but we chose to use the word tribe because when you go back to the definition, it's really about a group of people that have your back, right? And how do you really, that are connected and certainly anything can be taken to an extreme, but that's really the way we were looking at it. And so we always look at that we're neurobiologically hardwired to be in connection with other people that we're not meant to do this alone. Um, and, and really how do, yeah, how do you diversify your relationships and connect with people who are different than you and build momentum and energy for there? So that's how we look at the find your tribe principle. And so I'm just curious when you think about the noble purpose, you talk about from the sales standpoint, but can you talk a little bit more about this whole idea of then leading with it and really how you're looking at that idea of creating a tribe of true believers? So when we say true believers, what we mean is people who believe that their work matters, that your company makes a difference. And so one of the things that is really crucial is numbers and logic do not scale. Belief scales. And so as a leader, you want to create a shared belief that what you're doing matters. And this is not meant to be inauthentic or manipulative, but you want to create a shared belief around everyone, in your organization around how your organization is improving life for customers and the world. And so I just will give you an example. One of the leaders that we track in that book is Mike Giannone, who was the CEO of BlackBot, who's a client of ours. And the difference between when he did his town halls, where he went over a review of the numbers and the strategic plan versus after when we, after we started working with that organization, he made a decision to do his town halls, his quarterly CEO town halls very differently. And instead he said he spent about five minutes on the numbers, but the majority of time was bringing in customers and showing how they'd improve life for customers. 
So what he did was he scaled a belief across an organization around this is how we make a difference in what we do. Not surprisingly, about six months after he started doing it, they had a major innovation breakthrough. And he's since been named to Forbes list of top 50 innovative CEOs. And the reason was because instead of just talking about here's our results, he built belief around how we make a difference to customers. So that gave everyone a sight line, engineering, product development, marketing, everyone had a sight line to how they make a difference to customers. So that's what we mean by the tribe of true believers. People who believe that their work matters because they have absolute clarity about how you're offering, not just that you're good people and you give to charity, but how your actual commercial offering makes a difference to customers and in the world. It reminds me of, there is a commercial years ago, and I actually had the video that I used in some presentations, you know, when we could be in person, depending on what it was, but it, it was an old GE commercial. And it was where they, it was one of their manufacturing sites where they make scanning machines or something like that. And they brought in a small busload of cancer survivors that had been helped by the technology that these factory workers made, right? And the, meeting them and then, you know, there's tears and it's like, you know, I don't know if you realize that what you do on a day in day out basis, like granted that's saving lives, but you go back to the cleaning crew or you go back to whatever. It's like, yeah, when we can connect that, hey, our work matters and this is the difference that we're making and we don't just sell this widget or fill this order or, or do that. It's, it's so powerful. And the other thing it makes me, the other thing it makes me think of, and this, I know Simon Sinek talks about this and the Y Institute talks about this, but you know, just when we look at, you spoke about something really importantly, so that our brains, we we're emotional creatures. We're not logical creatures. So we make decisions from that limbic part of our brain that I feel connected. I feel I matter, whatnot. And it's the other part of our brain, like the neocortex and stuff where we put the language, but the decision doesn't neocortex, the logic, the analytical, that's not where we ultimately make decisions. That's where we put the language to help support what we're feeling, what, what matters, what we connect to. And I think so often when we're trying to convince somebody, I, I know I will speak to like in human resources and in the wellness industry or wherever you're trying to convince people of an ROI, we start immediately going to that logic. We start going to analytical and the data and the research and that stuff is important. But if you don't paint a picture where they believe and see what's possible and what's different, or you're trying to roll out a new program in the organization and you have it connected to the employees on that emotional level, it's not going to get very far. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I guess I'm having a moment of looking in the mirror, right? As someone who always goes to the research and is really eager to talk about that and wants to talk about how these things play out. What's more effective for our own business is to talk about why do you do this? Are you feeling connected? What would feeling more connected do for you? What would feeling more connected do for your employees? And of course, we have the research to back up why that matters. But before we dive into that, let's have a really personal conversation. Something tells me you don't want to feel like you're working in a sweatshop and that your employees would probably say the same thing. So I I think you're dead spot on on connecting on that personal level before we get into the nuts and bolts of decision making. Well, and I'm right there with you because I'm a research geek and I go to the numbers and and I think with the work we do, I feel like I used to say that I felt like I was a salmon swimming upstream for years. And now with finding a tribe, like I'm not by myself anymore. But, but when you're challenging paradigms or when you're challenging business as usual or the status quo, you've got to have some data to back you up or people won't listen to you, but that only gets you so far, right? That might, they might perk up 
but then what else? Or like you said, you can talk to them on an emotional level, but then they know that, oh, I better have something to back it up. So that's why I get geeky excited that there is such a growing body of research that just keeps compounding. I feel like year after year that further supports the stuff where 10, 15 years ago, people looked at me like I had, you know, four heads like, oh, that seems like a nice idea, but nice try. And it's like, no, like really. (laughs) So I get excited when the data supports it. Right. Well, I'll give you a lot of people listening to this might be saying, okay, I get the data story, but what do I do? So I want to give two things that people can do that are super easy that you can do no matter what the level, they will have a big impact on you. And if you're a leader on your team, number one is simply adjust your airtime. What we work towards for all the leaders we work with is 50% of your airtime, your leadership airtime, whether that's at a meeting, at in your writing, in your town halls, 50% of your airtime should be spent on talking about how your solution makes a difference, ideally to customers. So if right now your airtime is 80% on your internal numbers, shift it and do 50% customers, 50% numbers. That will make a big difference to your team. And then the second thing you can do is you can ask what we call the game-changing question, which is this. If you're in any situation, you're considering a new opportunity, someone's about to go on a sales call, you're making a strategic decision for your custom, for your company, you're about to do a single task as an employee, ask this one question. How will the customer be different as a result of doing business with us? Hmm. That will take you from that inward self-focus to an outward focus. So if you're about to serve the customer a frozen yogurt, or you're about to make a huge mergers and acquisition decision, that question will work at every one of those levels. And so what we find is the key thing is translating these ideas into action. And so those two things, looking at your leadership airtime and getting at least half of it focused on external impact, and then asking that one single question that's how you start to shift the culture of the company. I love that. And you know, it makes me think of like every shopping experience I've ever had. There's times where you might go into a a small business or maybe it's a national chain or whatever, but you go into a store and I will sometimes go, gosh, those people hate their lives. So you can just tell that they're miserable (laughs) or you can go, wow, like that was such a pleasant experience. Or I will say like, even some of the restaurants we frequent, we frequent because we've developed a relationship with favorite servers that, you know what, you can tell that they're there to make it a great experience. And, you know, they probably do that for everybody, but you feel like you connect with them and, you know, even during the pandemic, I'm like, I want to find out where they are and send them like, these are the tips we would have given you, you know, but we can't go to restaurants and stuff. Like it makes such a profound difference of where you're going to spend your money, where you're going to spend your time, where you're going to frequent because of, of how you feel and, and versus, oh, you're just, you don't matter or who cares. And to tie it back to sales, even we see a lot of organizations recognize how the the subconscious leaks out in body language, in tone of voice, in questioning. And a lot of organizations have decided, okay, we're going to train our sales team in body language and we're going to train them in tone of voice and we're going to train them in questioning. But what is much more authentic and easier is to make sure that core belief is there. So you don't have to worry about all these micro subconscious signals that we're talking about. Because when someone does have that core belief, they don't need body language training and they don't need tone of voice training. And a lot of times they don't even need as deep as sales training because they're naturally inclined to ask deeper questions and forge more close-knit relationships. Oh, for sure. I I would piggyback on that is, you know, we always talk about the, um, 
we talk about the inner game versus the outer game of leadership. And I think that when we think about showing up as, as a, the best version of ourselves or making that positive impact, I think that if we're paying attention to, like you said, Lisa, I'm having an off day. And so I know when I'm having an off day, I have to pause more. I have to listen more, or I have to push some things off, or I know that there it's, it's self-awareness 101, right? Followed by self-management 101. All that goes before how to, my body language will follow that stuff. And so, so I want to transition, but these are questions I ask every guest, but this speaks to that. Everyone has an off day that, that you said, Lisa. And one of the things that I'm always curious about for my guests that I would love both of you to answer is what is a self-limiting story you tell yourself and how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader in your life? So a self-limiting story that I had told myself for years was that a lot of people in finance and CEOs don't care about this stuff. That was a self-limiting story that I told myself for a long time. And so what happened was then I would, just like Elizabeth said, leave with all the data. Look, 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 look. See, I'm proving it. I'm proving it. I'm proving it. Here's the numbers. Here's the numbers. Here's the numbers. And it took me a while to realize that that belief that I had, that I'm the only one that really gets this and they don't care, that was in my head. And that was like way old of a belief. And that I had to really let go of that and start speaking my truth as I knew it. And that just speaking from my heart and my own truth would be enough for people to lean in. Because I didn't really believe that. I thought I had to have all this proof. And the proof is nice. But what I found was when I got more confidence to just speak what was what was my own lived experience and what I had observed and what was in my heart that, that I, I could step into bolder leadership. And I do not do this a hundred percent of the time, I will confess, but when I do it and it's getting to be more, it's better. Elizabeth. Mine is really similar to Lisa's. You know, I, I got into consulting very young. I was only 25 when I started and I had a lot of self-limiting beliefs around experience and credibility. And I think what 2020 has shown me was a lot of that was in my own head because no one has experience navigating a pandemic unless you're a hundred. And I actually do have a, a master's degree, but I was always self-conscious that it was online. And now everything is online and those are becoming a lot more legitimate. So I think as people listening are maybe doubting their own ideas, doubting their ability to speak into this larger thing called purpose, know that this is all a work in progress for everybody. And no matter where you are on, on the experience threshold, your experience is valid and we need your voice in this conversation. I love it. Well, and I think so many people can resonate with that because I will tell you, I coach all kinds of people and leaders who have that imposter syndrome or mm -hmm. feel that, right? Like, oh, they're not going to listen to me or who am I or, or whatnot. And so I love what you just shared, Elizabeth, because I do think that 2020 has illuminated, like, how do you innovate in a company? You're doing something you haven't done before, which means no one has an experience. You're trying something. And, and I know even for myself, I'm chuckling as I'm listening to both of you, because the, the people who know me will, this won't be a surprise to them, but I used to joke that with all the letters I have after my name, that I really can replace them all with just four Q M S U. I'm the queen of making shit up. And that's what I always would say. I have, um, because it's like, well, I read stuff or I know this. And, but the reality is it's, it's just going, you know what, let's try this. And it, that's called right. innovation. It, and I think that we can get into that self-deprecating 
um, versus, well, we, we don't have to be perfect at something. We can learn from it and we can grow. And, and I love Lisa, what you shared about just showing up as your authentic self uh, is so, so powerful. And that takes a lot of courage to do huge amount of courage. So next, next question I want to ask each of you, and then we're going to move into rapid fire is what is one impactful way that you are showing up as a leader these days, both in your professional life and your personal life? I can go first since Lisa had the courage to go first on the, uh, the last one. So we have been doing a lot of in-person events. I am sure like you prior to coronavirus, and we had done some virtual work and we had partnered with LinkedIn learning. I would say virtual was probably 35% of our business. When the coronavirus started, Lisa and I were both really challenged to repivot our business and create really engaging virtual experiences. And I think something that I'm proud of myself for and, and proud of Lisa for also is having the courage to step into the unknown like every business is doing. We saw March, April, May, even June, and in some cases, even now, a lot of people holding their breath and waiting for things to get back to normal. And what we know is that's not going to happen. And even if we had a magic wand to erase coronavirus, we have fundamentally changed as industries, as businesses, as people. And I think one thing our business did very well was step into that space quickly and not hesitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would echo that. And I, I think for me, it maybe is even more personal. Um, one, I listened to Elizabeth and she said, quit being so slow. You have to do this. Um <laughs> It's like, okay. And hopefully a nicer tone, but it was a very, <laughs> it was a nicer tone, but it was much nicer. But I think one thing that, that I'm doing is, is taking that same energy to our senior leaders that we work with. And I am proud of the way that I have been able to ask them questions with grace and kindness, but real deep questions about how do you think your team is experiencing their job now? What would it look like if they could experience it differently? And I say with grace and kindness that to ask the questions, not assuming that I know the answer, not assuming that they have good intent or bad intent, but just to really ask some questions that give people leaders, especially senior leaders, the chance to pause and say, what do I want this to be? And that for me to be able to do that with a lot of confidence and also being okay that I don't know the answer for them, that that has been something that's been really powerful. Asking a good question or asking a question that creates a space for people to think or stretches their thinking is way more impactful than, oh, I'm coming with the answers. So I, I love that you're, you're engaging, you're engaging in an authentic conversation, but it also sparks people to think. And I personally think that's way more valuable than here. Let me come in and give you information. Like, no. And it takes more planning and it's harder. So one of the things that I will brag on myself that I've been doing is shocker, putting space between my calls. So I have more time to think and plan. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, are are you ladies ready to play our uh, quick questions, our our rapid fire question section? I hope so. We are. Who's going to go first? Are we both going to do both questions? Yep. We'll just, we'll just go. um, So yeah. So how about we'll just do this. So for each question, whoever wants to go first, but we'll try to Lisa, Elizabeth, we'll, we'll go in that order and we'll just ping pong. So the first one each for each of you fill in the blank living authentically is very challenging (laughs) not having to use your customer service voice. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) 
Uh, when the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Pass it to someone who can. I like it. Ask myself if the feeling is temporary. Nice. Don't nice. make a decision based on a temporary feeling. That's, that's, that's fantastic. When's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up? I had some challenging conversations about race with some of my black friends, which actually wasn't that challenging because I could listen, but I had some challenging conversations with race about race with some of my white friends. And I should mention that I am white. Kudos to you, right? I, I, Brene, I, I always go back to Brene in this space, but she always says, you know, at some point, the people who've been doing the oppressing, whether we personally have, but we're all three of us are white women, right? Mm-hmm. And the more, more positions of privilege we have, we need to be leaning into these uncomfortable conversations. So kudos, kudos to you for, for well, that. I didn't say it went well, but I did it. Yeah. You know what? We're all, we're all learning. So yeah. Uh, kudos. Elizabeth, how about you? Well, that's a tough act to follow. And I think folks listening may be having the same experience of, I don't know if what I would dis- or if um, what I'm doing would be described as necessarily courageous. People attach a lot to that word. But I think to show up as your fully engaged self for work, which I try to do on most days, and to operate with confidence in the face of uncertainty is an act of courage. Whether you are leading your own business, whether you are leading your family, whether you are leading a small team, you showing up as your authentic self, recognizing, I don't know what's going to happen six months from now, but I'm going to do my best. Getting out of bed is a courageous act. So I'm hardly giving myself a trophy for that, but I think a lot of people are probably feeling very thin and not recognizing how much emotional labor they are doing on a daily basis. Oh, absolutely. I think people are exhausted. So sometimes to just keep going is a huge act of courage. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? That I used to be a gymnast with Sandra Bullock. No way. (laughs) Isn't that such a cool story? (laughs) That's very cool. What was your go-to event? Balance beam. Nice. And I will tell you, she was as funny in high school as she is now. (laughs) She's an authentic person. I'm sure she's gone through her tribulations, but. That's funny. All right. Fun fact. I came in second for a world record when I was in elementary school for the world's largest finger painting. One of my friends and I organized this like huge finger painting event at Relay for Life, obviously with the help of our parents. And we were beaten out by a small margin by a a town in Brazil who made a finger painting that was like two feet bigger than ours. But funny. What was the finger painting of? It was for a Relay Relay for Life event. So it was like the ribbons. And then we had these like hearts inside of each other. It wasn't very dramatic, but hundreds of people participated in it. And it literally took up this entire gymnasium. But it was just a tiny bit too short for that world record moment. (laughs) And be honest, it wasn't about Relay for Life. It was about you getting in the world record. Yeah, we wanted to be in the world record book. Our whole class did. Right? Of course you did. Of course you did. You couldn't grow the giant fingernails, so this was it. I felt like this one was one I could do, and apparently it was very, very close. (laughs) Well, you know, hey, there we go. 
All right, so we're going to turn to kind of the, some of the, the funny ones. So this one I love doing. It's a great icebreaker, so feel free to use it for any of your gatherings, but it's the four C's. So this is if reality was not uh, a consideration, if money was no object, et cetera, uh, what car would you want to have? What country would you want to visit? What cuisine would you eat? It does not have to be related to the country. And what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with? So we'll start with car. I want to do them all right now. Okay, do them all. Go for it. <laughs> okay, go. I'll think. I would time. be sitting, I would be driving my Alfa Romeo convertible <laughs> to a chalet in Italy where I would eat pasta with Barack Obama. Lovely. That's very specific. That's fantastic. If he's <laughs> listening, I am, so I'm really available right now. <laughs> Yeah, right. We got you. I think I would probably drive a convertible too. I've always wanted to drive a convertible. I don't know which type. I don't know much about cars. A nice one, maybe with leather seats. Um, Any country in the world, I would love to go to Iceland and maybe see some of the Northern Lights. I am always a sucker for Asian cuisine and any type of sushi is something that always floats my boat. And any celebrity living or dead, that's a lot of pressure. I would probably pick someone who was alive at a time when I wasn't like a, a Holocaust survivor, a world war II veteran, a, you know, civil rights activist, someone who had an experience that was so different than what I've experienced. Nice. Love that. That's better. I want to go back and pick somebody else. Okay. (laughs) No no shade on Obama. If you're still listening, Barack Obama, (laughs) I'll go. Don't be offended. That's okay. I have, I have a list of cuisine depending on the mood, right? Do I want to laugh or do I want eye candy or do I want thoughtful conversation? So it's okay. You can have variety, but (laughs) all right. Your favorite go-to movie. I already know Lisa's. I changed it in recent years. Mm. The greatest showman is my new go-to movie love it the whole I can listen to those songs I was gonna say that one oh I agree it's fantastic it's fantastic and everything the rags to riches the he had this bigger purpose the dancers the oh the long-term marriage made sexy I mean that's all pretty good stuff Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely love The Greatest Showman. I thought the new Mulan was really good too. It came out on Disney Plus, so no one got the theater experience, but I thought that was a really interesting interpretation on the classic. You know, I've seen it show up on my Disney Plus. I haven't seen it yet. So maybe maybe now that someone has endorsed it, I will, I will have to give it uh, a go. Your go-to song. Dancing Queen. Love it. So I listen to Blink-182 songs when I'm writing, which is the band I listened to in high school. And I love all of their albums. No favorite. Got it. Okay. How about your signature dance move? Probably something cringy for me. (laughs) Some like awkward swaying would be my signature dance move. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still waiting for the day they bring back the bump. The bump. (laughs) I love it. That's fantastic. Sway and bump. In another life, your job or career would be? I would run a global conglomerate of preschools. Ooh. I would be Maria Montessori and franchise. Nice. 
I think I would run a home makeover service, but like a scrappy on the budget HGTV style one. Very fun. Very fun. What's something you can't live without? My phone. Is that too millennial of me? (laughs) (laughs) No. My cat. Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. I found found out that one the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Sleep is, is critical. Something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy. Daily harvest smoothies. I was going to say iced espresso. We both have morning beverage preferences. (laughs) Hey, I like it. I like it. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? I'm grateful for a lot. I'm, I'm really grateful that we had the kind of business that we could pivot because a lot of the principles that we espouse are based on what I learned 10 years ago when we had a business that went bankrupt. So I'm grateful that I'm not lying awake at night worrying about whether I can feed my family because I've been there and it sucks. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that as much of a dumpster fire as this year is, I'm grateful that a lot of issues and voices that needed to be lifted up have been lifted up in ways that we now have to or get to deal with. And and I'm, I'm really grateful that the arc of the universe does seem to be bending however slowly. I agree with that. I found myself really overwhelmed with gratitude for our clients this year. And I I'm sure you've seen the same thing, Rosie. We do a lot of work in the purpose space and the behavior space. And it's, it's always a question mark, whether that'll actually be lived in a time as challenging as this. And I have seen so many of our clients step into a space with great courage and vulnerability of purpose and staying true to their magnetic North. So I think that has been really, encouraging to see and I I think it's a huge huge arc in the universe that so many leaders are doing this that's awesome well I want to thank you both for having this conversation I want to thank you for your work and I think you know if 2020 has taught us anything it's taught us a lot of things but I, I really do think this whole idea of can we just take time to ground ourselves as individuals And as organizations, right, find that lighthouse, find that purpose and let that guide us of what do we need to make a difference and be on authentic selves. I mean, I just imagine if we all started to do that more regularly and consistently, how amazing our experiences would be and how different our world would be. So I thank you both so much for all the gifts you're bringing to bring this important topic out to everybody. Well, likewise, in your work with rehumanizing the workplace. And thank you for having us on this show. It is always great to talk about not only why purpose and authenticity are important, but how people can actually live them in the cadence of day-to-day business. Why the greatest showman is a metaphor for everything good in life. Right? <laughs> this is me. I love that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com, where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. 
You can also find me on LinkedIn at R Ward, Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Rosie Ward, or email me at Rosie at DrRosieWard.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone. <laughs>